Okay, we're looking for surprises in this sermon series. So we started a few weeks ago, and the title of the sermon series is Surprised by the Gospel. And we're, we're doing the ironic thing of trying to find surprises, which is kind of impossible to do. But here we go. So let's, let's find the surprise for us this morning in the text that we just heard read from Isaiah 6, but also from Romans chapter 3, which I'll be spending some time in as well. Um, but before I get to Romans 3, just to talk a little bit about Isaiah 6, you heard some interesting images read about in that text. Flying angels and burning coals and um, seraphim. It's an interesting picture that we're given. And in one sense, as odd as it seems to us, it actually should remind us or point us to something that is kind of commonplace for most of us in the modern world, which is a courtroom. That's what Isaiah 6 really is kind of bringing us to consider, is it's, it's a courtroom image. And in fact, the first couple of chapters of the prophet Isaiah is a courtroom setting. And so in Isaiah chapter 1, it brings in this, this story of um, the idea that the people who are living on the earth are, are guilty people or sinful people. And so verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 1 says, it's this God speaking. It says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? And then to go on in verses 16 to 20, it tells a little bit more as well. It says things like, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. And basically, stop doing bad, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the, the widow's cause. And then he says, let us come and reason together. So there's a, there's a courtroom image that we're set up to in Isaiah chapter 1. And, um, and again, I mean... Everything from turning on the TV and watching Law and Order to maybe your own personal experiences in courtrooms. I don't know. Um, I've been in a courtroom once or twice. I won't share those full stories today. Another time. No, nothing major. Just speeding tickets when I was in college. Um, But we've all had our different experiences with courtroom settings. And we're kind of familiarized with them because um, a lot of us find ourselves in trouble or against the law in some ways at some point in our life. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, which Kara just read a moment ago, Isaiah, the prophet, individually, personally, finds himself brought before the judge. So it's not a collective courtroom anymore. Now it's like a one-on-one, the judge and Isaiah together. And just like we've sung about already today, holy, holy, holy. We sang that at the beginning of the service. Marcos talked about God being holy. Isaiah 6 says the whole room was filled with the holiness of God, which is this idea that Isaiah is in the presence of someone who is greater and different and more worthy of praise than anybody else in all of human history and existence. And that's a, that's a, an awe-inspiring, fear-inducing kind of place to find yourself when you're in that kind of power and authority, one-on-one. So what will God do to Isaiah, who is clearly, he's lumped in the group of sinful, broken, guilty people. He's not a perfect person. 
And Isaiah knows it. The minute he walks in the room, he knows it. He's like, I am in the presence of one who's not sinful, and I know that I am sinful. What will God do? What will the judge do to Isaiah? And it's a beautiful image. It says that the seraphim took, so this angel went and had a burning coal that he had taken from the fire with tongs. And he touched the mouth of Isaiah. Ouch, first of all. Touched his mouth. And he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. This guilty guy who feels like nothing before a holy God in an instant is innocent. He's clean. He's atoned for. And now he belongs in that presence with no shame. It's an amazing thought. He gives him what he couldn't get him what he couldn't give himself, which is innocence and freedom. Why? Why would God do that? Why would the judge do that for Isaiah? And why would God do that for you and me? That's what we're here together for. This isn't just about Isaiah, you know, 2,700 years ago. This is about you and me today. Why would God choose to do that for us? And does he do that for us? So to go back to the courtroom idea, because that's where we're going to be kind of dwelling in this morning, is picture a courtroom. Picture yourself walking into a courtroom. Again, maybe you've been there, maybe you haven't, I don't know. Walk into a courtroom and what are you thinking? What are you seeing? You know, if you've, I know there's all different types of courtrooms, but a lot of times they have these big wooden panel walls and very like artfully crafted, um, you know, exteriors and big, big uh, column, like just, it's very austere, it's very powerful, it's very authority driven. You know, then you see an American flag, which symbolizes the country you're in, and then you'll see maybe the state flag of where you are, and then maybe you'll see other kind of uh, symbols and images that show you power, that show you like you are under the law of this land. That is, that is what is over you, the law. And then you see different seating areas, some for witnesses, some for defendants, some for the plaintiff, some for attorneys. And then most prominently, the thing you'll probably see very first is you see the judge's seat. Usually it's elevated, it has a big box or something, and it's kind of sitting up, and you know that that's where the, the person who's going to make the decision is going to sit over you. Authority. You know, back in the day, preachers used to have that kind of authority. They would build these pulpits that had these spirals, and I'd be like up there preaching down on you. I'd be wearing like a big black robe, and I would have that kind of authority. And we don't really do that much anymore. We're kind of more level. But the power of a judge is unmistakable in a courtroom. And so courtrooms are places of power and authority. They remind you that you're not in control in that moment. That whatever you did to allow you to be there, that's why you're here and it's out of your control. Whatever you, the thing you could control already happened. But what's about to happen, you can't control. Now it's about the witnesses. Now it's about the evidence. Now it's about guilty or innocent. And whether you see the courtroom as beautiful or terrifying depends on whether you know you're guilty or innocent. 
If you're innocent and someone's framed you and you walk into that courtroom, you have nothing to fear. In fact, you kind of see the beauty of the room. Wow, that's a really nice wood panel wall. Wow, this is a, the air conditioning feels great in here. But if you're guilty and you know it and you know all the evidence is about to be laid out against you, it's not a beautiful place. It's not a beautiful place. So today's sermon is going to answer the question, how can you and I know that we can be free? How can we find and be certain of a clear verdict? Let me give you one more illustration just to kind of continue to build it for us. Picture a fish. It swims in the water. It could be a fishbowl, it could be the ocean, it could be a lake. I don't really care what kind of water. It's just water. A fish is swimming in water. Now you may say that that fish is constrained by that water. That I can't believe he's confined to that water. Shouldn't he be free to go anywhere he wants and do whatever he wants and live the life he wants? You know, and maybe there's been a few fish out there in the past that have thought that and said, I can't believe I'm being confined to this space. I'm going to stretch my wings and go and try to, do, try to live somewhere else because whoever's confining me to live here doesn't know what they're talking about. So a fateful fish decides to jump out of that water and onto land and says, finally, I'm free. The whole world is at my fingertips or my gill tips. And what happens to that fish? That fish, that fish is not going to last very long because that fish was designed for water. His freedom is found within the confines of his best case life, which is water. A fish is designed for water. And so freedom is not getting out of the water. Freedom is living well in the water. And so it is for you and I, as we begin thinking today, that when we think about freedom, there, is a, there are confines to our freedom because someone out there has designed the world to know the best place for us to swim in, the best place for us to live in. And so that's our first point, is there's one judge in the world that knows our best case scenario and our best case life. Just like the fish has water, you and I have a life that we're meant for, that if we try to jump out of it and stretch our wings and not be confined and think we're finding freedom, actually we're finding death because we didn't realize the confines that we were meant for. But the real, the, the real point is that there's one judge who knows this. There's someone who actually has designed the world in a certain way to to run it. There is one over all of us in the universe who sees everything, who knows everything, who's authoritative, who has our best interests in mind, who's sovereign overall. And that's a lot of power for one person. That one person is the judge. He sees it all. And the scriptures talk a lot about God being the judge of all life. They use that image quite a bit. So the beautiful thing that the Bible says about God being the judge is it doesn't just say, God's the judge, deal with it. It says, Psalm 7, verse 11, God is the righteous judge. He knows what is right. Or Psalm 67, verse 4, it says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? For, the, for God judges the people with equity and guides the nations on the earth. Meaning, God knows what he's doing. And therefore, let the nations be glad 
and be filled with joy. Like, the image I gave of a courtroom and of a judge is scary, but the Bible invites us to see God as the judge who brings joy and gladness in his presence because he knows what he's doing. He's righteous. You know, the Lord, it says in Isaiah 3, has taken his place to contend and he stands to judge the people. So as we talk about it being a joyful thing that God is the judge, he's still a judge. Like he is, he is looking at each of us and saying, I need to judge of you because I want you to live in the way that you're meant to be living. James chapter 5 says the judge is standing at the door. So we have this beautiful stained glass that I refer to often because I stare at it when I preach, when I'm not looking at your lovely faces. I'm looking at this beautiful stained glass window, which is Jesus standing at the door and knocking. It's it's an image from Revelation. Uh, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. It's basically saying, like, I'm inviting myself into your life. All you have to do is open the door. But the other image that the Bible gives, which usually don't see many stained glass windows of this picture, is Jesus the judge standing at your door saying, let me in so I can see what you're up to, essentially. So I can know if you're living well, if you're, if you're on my path. And in 1 Peter 4, it says, um, all of us will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So the good news is that God is a righteous judge. He's fair and he's not corrupt. But how do you feel honestly about God looking over every aspect of your life? How do you feel about that? Is that... It's a lot of authority for one person over your life. Do you feel uncomfortable with someone who knows everything you've ever done? Who knows every corner of your heart, every corner of your mind, who knows your failings, who knows what you wish you could get. How do you feel about that? It's a little uncomfortable, maybe a lot uncomfortable. Other other worldviews and religions also have this idea of God being the judge. So Islam, for instance, also views God as being the judge. But listen to how Islam talks about Allah being the judge. This is from Surah 101, verses 6 through 9 of the Quran. It says this, Whoever has his scale of good deeds heavy will be in life blissful. All right, so if you have heavy good deeds, picture a scale. If you have really good deeds, you will be in a blissful life. Meaning if you're a really good person, you do good deeds. Blissful life. And whoever has his scale of good deeds lighter, meaning there's not enough, his place will be hell. That's the Muslim understanding of how God judges, is it's a scale. So your entire life, from birth to death, God is counting every single thing that you do and putting some in the good deeds and some in the bad deeds, and it's all as to where the scale is going to go. How would you come out on that scale? Just interested. That's, that's the Muslim view of, of how God judges the world. But as we talk about the judge being one judge, um, think about the courtroom image of witnesses. There are many witnesses that we have of our good and bad deeds throughout our life, but all it takes is one real witness. You know, God is the primary witness against us because he's the only one that can really see everything about us. 
you know, I, like I said earlier about, like, I don't know if you've been into a courtroom or not, because I legitimately don't know most of, most of you if you've been into a courtroom. So I, I really don't know how to judge you as good or bad. Like if I was put in charge of the scales of your life, I would have very limited information. But God does see the corners of every aspect of your heart and life. He's the one witness. Psalm 33 says that God looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. And from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them observes all their deeds. God made your heart. God knows your heart. God sees everything about you. Later on in the New Testament, it says even the hidden things of our heart are exposed to God. And so that can be a really terrifying thought if if we don't trust the one who's seeing those things. They're all exposed and laid bare before God. But there really is a, a, a reality that other people around us are witnesses against or for us in our life. So if you were put on the stand at the end of life, like who would you call on to say, hey, this person will vouch for how good of a person I was? And who would you want to say, don't call on that person because he's seen, he or she has seen me do all the bad stuff. Like at that certain time of my life, I did some bad things. Don't call them because they probably think I, they probably tip the scales. Who would you call on? Who are the witnesses around you? In the reality, it doesn't matter because that's not how this works anyway. God is the one judge. He's the witness. And therefore, because he's the one judge and he's the real one witness, he gives the one verdict at the end of, all, at the end of our days. And because of all this, this is a really gloomy sermon so far. Because the courtroom setting is not beautiful right now. The courtroom setting is gloomy. It's all trending in one direction, is it not? It's, this is what you did against me. And so there's really only one verdict that's going to come. And before I even get to the outcome of the verdict, let me just say that there's only one verdict, period. You only get one court case in life, guys. Like, this is, you don't get to go back and appeal. There's not multiple court cases of like, oh, this is how he was when he was an adolescent, but oh, but in his middle age, we'll do a different court case and we'll work them all together. And no, there's one verdict at the end of your days. One court case, one shot, guilty or innocent. That's how this works. That's how the Bible lays it out. That's how the Bible lays this out. Let's go back to a couple other worldviews for a second. Because I just, I feel like we need to know, like, how does Christianity teach about this in comparison to other things? So let's go back to Islam. Islam is actually very similar in this regard of that there's one judgment day. There's one time at the end of all your days where you come before Allah. But again, it's the scales. So it's very black and white. It's just, okay, 55% bad, sorry. That's how Islam views it. It's very cut and dry. But I know some of you even grew up in a more Catholic background. And so Catholicism is actually pretty different because um, Catholicism has this, has this background of purgatory that they bring into the mix, which is at the end of life, you actually kind of get a second chance. And again, I'm not an expert on purgatory. I just am not. But from what I understand, you get an extra space after you die to go through different levels of purgatory. And so that's very different than what the scriptures teach us. And in, and in my view, there's no place in the Bible that talks about purgatory. It's something that came up through tradition and through the saints. 
in many years of Catholic history. But if you read the scriptures, I, I would really love to have a discussion about where you would find purgatory. Because I, I don't think it's there. But maybe even more mainstream for you and I today, especially living in a place like Salem, or if you walk out onto the street and ask someone their views of, of Judgment Day or heaven or hell or all that, they would say, well, I just think everybody goes to heaven. And that's called universalism. And there's churches in this city and around the country and around the world that, that do that because it sounds great, because it sounds beautiful, that, that this life really doesn't matter in the sense of what you do or don't do or believe or don't believe, but that we'll all end up in the same place anyway. And it's called universalism, that eventually everybody will be saved just because. Because it sounds really good. But it's also, in the Bible, very difficult to find evidence for that view because this life does matter. And because this life matters so much that God put himself into the story. You know, from the Bible, we get the, we get the view that you don't get two chances, but you get, you get one life. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just to give you one example, it says, just as it is appointed for men and women to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so that's, that's where we're all working towards. Um, and so C.S. Lewis, just to give you my token C.S. Lewis quote of the day, uh, he says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will of itself be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And so for us, it's how do you nip it in the bud? So back to the courtroom, the jury leaves and goes and discusses and comes up with a verdict. And the verdict, as we know, is going to be guilty until the surprise of the story. The surprise of the story comes here, which in the middle of our courtroom scene, where it's me and God, the righteous judge, and me, the one who knows I'm sinful and has guilt, The verdict's about to come down. It's about to be over. And then the Bible gives us the surprise witness. The surprise witness. The one who comes in at just the right time. Who comes in seemingly out of nowhere. And he steps in. He takes our place on the bench, on the guilty stand. And he says, I'm going to accept the guilty penalty for you. He said, whatever price this person is worth, give it to me. And in that moment, in biblical language, he satisfies the wrath of the righteous judge against sin. And we just get up and walk out of the courtroom. And it's done. We're out of the courtroom, just like that. It's not because there's new evidence that came out and said, oh, actually, Stephen was a pretty amazing guy, and that's, let's, let's bring in all this extra evidence. No, none of that was there. It's not new evidence of good works that outweigh the bad, that help me avoid a guilty verdict. We've, just, we've been justified by the one only way possible, and that's the one who steps in and takes it for us instead. But that person had to be perfectly righteous himself. No guilt or stain to blemish his record. He had to take it fully. That had to be a, a perfect exchange, a ransom, a dirty deal, you could say. He gets our sin and dies. 
We get his righteousness and live, walk away, scot-free. This is what the Bible calls justification. It's a legal term. When the Bible talks about being justified by faith, it's a legal term, meaning that you were due a penalty and yet you don't have to pay it. You've been justified freely. He is the surprise for us. Jesus Christ is the surprise witness who comes in and takes our place. He justifies us and he is the justifier of us. With all that said, let me just now read Romans 3, 21 to 26. Because I've been preaching on this, you just didn't know it yet. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, like Isaiah, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So justification is by grace alone, meaning that it has nothing to do with you, nothing to do with your good works or your bad works. None of that comes into the consideration of the courtroom. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, Meaning that all you have to say to the guy who comes in and offers to take your place, all you have to say is, sure. That's faith. Faith is saying, okay, yes, come sit here. That's what faith is. It's saying yes to the offer of God to step into your place. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Only one person could do that, and he did it. He did it for you and me. He paid our price, and the price was the cross. The cross where our sins were forever dealt with. Climactically, all at once. That was the penalty. And Jesus took it on himself. Now that's justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What does it mean for you and I today? So that is the core of the gospel message, is that you can be justified freely and walk away free from all the penalty that you're due by faith in Christ. Now, what does it mean for you and I? Just a couple of takeaway points that can be really impactful for how you live out your life. Number one is it means that our change of status from guilty to innocent can happen just like that in an instant. Think about how long these court proceedings happen, like the political courts and like, remember like they schedule them out months in advance and they get drawn out and there's appeals and all this. No, for you and I, our sentence, our status can change in an instant by saying yes. Isaiah 1 says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Listen to this. Though your sins are like scarlet, like the color of this carpet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's impossible. 
You know how hard it is to turn that to white? It's impossible. But in an instant, God changes our status. Number two, our sins, our past, our grief, our brokenness, anything that is just really weighing heavy on us, the stuff that we've done in our life, none of that has to own your future. None of that has to affect how you live out the rest of your days. You can have it all dealt with in a healthy way. It's not about ignoring it or suppressing it or hiding it or pretending like it didn't happen. Like we still deal with the ramifications of it, but it doesn't define you anymore. All that stuff that you know about yourself that, that sits in the back and that Satan loves to bring up to make you feel the worst, none of that has to deal with your future anymore. It can be dealt with out in the open and your future can be bright and free. Number three, it means that no one around us, no matter how mean they are to us, no matter how hard they are to deal with, no matter how hopeless they seem to us, no one around us is a lost cause. So again, there's healthy boundaries with difficult people. Like it's wise to do that, but don't ever give up on someone because God didn't give up on you. You and I all were lost causes at one point, but God came running after us and brought us in. So the people that we have the hardest time with, they're not lost causes because they have the same opportunity to say yes at any point as well. And we just have to simply be a positive witness towards them of say, hey, can I tell you about my courtroom scene? The most amazing thing happened. You don't have to have that happen to you. You can have the free gift of Jesus stepping into your life as well. And then lastly, I just would say the fourth just practical takeaway for you and I is just that to be justified by faith through grace, it just raises the bar on how precious your life is. Your life is the greatest gift you can have. So life is hard, life is difficult, there's pain, but it is a gift. Every day is a gift that you get to live All of your life is out in front of you. There's nothing to fear, death, failure, all your brokenness. None of that ultimately will define you because you are secure in Christ through faith in him. His status is given to you freely. And so we get to live our life through the avenue of grace. You live on Grace Avenue. You just do. If you live in the presence of Jesus, your life is an abundant gift. So just to conclude, let me give you a couple of quotes. Um, I recently read, sorry, this is my second C.S. Lewis quote, sorry. Um, I recently read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, again recently. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a weird title, but the, the backdrop of the book is, it's, a, it's an allegory book of uh, a, a demon writing letters to his apprentice demon who's trying to lead Christian people astray. So it's a really interesting, like, look from the other side of, like, this is what demons and Satan are trying to do to lure you away from God and from Jesus. It's a really fascinating book. Um, But two times in the book, they, they talk about what God is doing, or they call him the enemy. So what the enemy is doing to try to lead people into life. And they keep coming back to this idea of love, how God loves, loves humans. How could God love humans like this? 
And then their, and in their correspondence of the letter, uh, they're basically questioning. They're saying, there's no way that God really loves humans as much as he says he does. There's just no way. There's no way that a holy, righteous judge could love guilty people like that. There's no way. And so I just love this quote in a backwards kind of way. Twice it says this, and one of them is the last page of the book. The demon says to the other demon, if only we could find out what he is really up to. If only we could find out what God is really up to. There's got to be another agenda. There's got to be another purpose. There's got to be more than just love or grace. And friends, there's not. There's not anything else God is up to other than just you. Loving you. Giving you grace. Welcoming you into his presence. Because he created you and he loves you. You're his prized possession. St. Augustine has said, I have read Plato and Cicero sayings that are very wise and very beautiful, but none of them have ever said, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden. And Tim Keller says, if you were a hundred times worse than you currently are, your sins would still be no match for his mercy. That's what justification is, saying yes to the offer of grace that God has given to you. And so next week and in the weeks that follow this sermon, we're going to talk about the life you get to live because of saying yes to the grace of God. So I look forward to doing that in future weeks. But for now, let's close in prayer and we'll sing our final song. Heavenly Father, thank you for the free gift of righteousness that's been given to us in Jesus. It's not only that we're off scot-free, but we actually get Jesus's righteousness too. And um, we look forward to unpacking that in future weeks. But uh, for now, God, we just say thank you. And we pray that uh, more and more we would be able to say yes to that offer and that those around us that we know who are hurting and broken would say yes to that offer as well. Thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.